live from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 10.50 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone today. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Starr, along with our team from Micro Irrigation Group, Ms. Inge Bisconer and Paul McFadden. And um, tonight is uh, dedicated to the agriculture world. So uh, welcome, uh, Inge and Paul, and I'll turn the show over to you guys. Well, thanks, Rob. Uh, thanks for having us. Good to hear your voice, Rob. Long so time. Long, you heard it a couple hours ago. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I know. It's all yours. Thank you. Uh, we have a, a very fun show for, uh, for you all uh, uh, tonight. Uh, Ag and Environmental Alliances. Our first guest tonight is Stan Bradshaw. Stan, are you with us? Hey, welcome to the Water Zone. We have Paul and Inky. <laughs> Stan, uh, thanks for uh, uh, pitching here. We know uh, uh, Laura's tied up, and we appreciate you, you jumping in and uh, helping uh, uh, educate uh, our listening audience on uh, some of these issues that uh, we've been facing for, for decades. Happy to be here. So uh, let me inter- introduce you to, uh, to our listening audience. Uh, Stan has spent over 25 years working on collaborative restoration projects in the Blackfoot River Basin in Montana. His work has restored trout streams and made ranch operations more viable, which is important for all of us. As staff attorney for Trout Unlimited in Helena, Montana for over a decade, Stan has pioneered ways to improve irrigation efficiencies, which is also uh, critical, while restoring flows to dewatered streams, developing partnerships with ranchers, state and federal agency staff, and watershed groups. Before joining Trout Unlimited staff, Mr. Bradshaw had been chief legal counsel to Montana's Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. He also has found time for fly fishing in Montana. That's a perfect place to do it, of course. Working as a fly fishing guide and publishing books on the art of uh, fly tying and other essentials to the craft of uh, in literature of fly fishing. So welcome to the Water Zone, Stan. Thanks for having me. So uh, we, we'd just like to get a little bit of background. Obviously, Crowded uh, uh, Lemon is a, is a big uh, uh, contributor to the uh, Western Ag and Conservation Coalition groups, uh, for example, like the California Cattle uh, Growers Association, California Farm Bureau, the California Ag Irrigation Association, the Environmental Defense Fund, the Family Farm Alliance, the Irrigation Association, Kennedy and Co., Montana Stock Growers, the Nature Conservancy, Public Lands Council, Trout Unlimited, of course, uh, last but not least. That's a pretty uh, diverse group. And uh, 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 so as, as that kind of as our introduction, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, with this coalition uh, as a contributing or a partner in this coalition, the, the Conservation Coalition. Sure. So for, for at least a few decades now, Trout Unlimited has um, recognized that um, its, its quest to improve trout fisheries ultimately had to look beyond the, the thread of the stream that was involved and look to what look to the watershed level. And once you do that, once you, you raise your gaze above that, that stream itself, you have to begin to deal with the fact that there are other, other communities dependent upon that water source and that watershed, um, as, as are the trout. And so over a, a fairly lengthy period of time now, Trout Unlimited has been developing an ethic that recognizes that um, if we're going to sustain our our fisheries, we're going to have to also sustain um, working landscapes and the people that depend upon those landscapes. And so, um, frankly, when the when the coalition started to form, it seemed like a natural evolution to work at the intersection of, of agriculture and healthy rivers. So, Stan, this is Ingie Bisconner. Um, welcome to the show. Uh, I, In your introduction, you were saying that... Um, you know, the rehabilitation of these trout streams helped make ranches more viable as well. Could you tell us a little bit about that intersection of how, um, um, you know, a dewatered stream, when it, when it becomes viable again, also helps the ranchers? Yeah. Um, and it basically, 
I'm going to sort of fall back on some of my experience in the Blackfoot watershed. And, and what we found there was was that in, in many instances where where a stream was not generating the water to keep the fish in, um, as, as we're all from the West here, you know, we deal with Western water rights. But beyond the, the simple fact of diverting water from streams and, and irrigating crops, what we began to appreciate was that typically there were a variety of other sorts of um, impairments to a stream that was not allowing it to sort of meet all of those needs that it meets. And a lot of times those were um, based on past um, human practices, if you will, that once we began to address those, we found that we were not only producing a healthier stream from a fishery standpoint, but we were actually creating a situation in which there was more water available um, for, for our agricultural partners. And so over time, what we've come to appreciate is, is that typically um, it's not a speedy process because it takes a long time for people to get comfortable with that idea, but that typically once we began to sit down and work on what the, the needs of the, the ranchers and irrigators are and the needs of the fisheries, we found that there's very often um, a lot of common ground. And it's not, it's not inevitably uh, all common ground, but we've, we've learned to sort of, um, it's what one of my irrigator partners calls the 80-20 rule. Um, of 100% of issues we might talk about, if we agree on 80, let's work on those and we'll set the other 20, 20 aside. Yeah, I can imagine that was a real challenge because you would think that initially they were in conflict with one another. They're really fighting over the same resource. How did you get to that point where you could get them to the table and find the common ground? Well, part of it was um, sort of learning to shut up and listen to the other side, if you will. <laughs> um, and um, and and that that is not, I think, sort of culturally part of our nature. But um, as a practical matter, um, in where I've worked, um, typically the people that are there are there is wedded to the values of that land, even if it's not a fisheries value, as, as I might be to that fishery. And once we're able to sort of sort our way through, um, you know, sort of more. I guess, mundane political kinds of issues and just talk about sort of what each other's percept- per- perceptions are of, of that resource. Um, and again, it doesn't happen in one meeting. You know, with some people it takes um, months to years, and hopefully not decades, but in a few instances, decades, <laughs> to get to that conversation. But it's just a matter, it takes a lot of patience on both sides. I bet. Just uh, curious, from a, um, obviously from a, 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 an area of, like Montana, um, completely different from, uh, or it, maybe it's not, maybe the conversations are similar on the national level with some of the other members of the coalition. Uh, any, uh, any thoughts on that? Oh, I uh, and I've, I've I have to give you the caveat that I haven't been actively involved in the coalition activities per se, but I I look at a number of the groups there and I recognize a lot of them and 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 I'm pretty sure I know some of the people in them and, and most of the people in those groups I think have come from from experience what I'll call on the ground um, beyond sort of the larger sort of ten thousand foot view of of sort of collaborative conservation, at some point those groups and their memberships have been involved in sort of actual practical application of this idea. And so I, I, I think, at least in my experience, when I've talked with people from places other than, than my little piece of Montana in other states about this, when we start conversing about the issues that we confront and how we deal with them, we find that there's there's a tremendous amount of overlap and a tremendous sort of duplication of experience when we begin to have those conversations. Interesting. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, a project uh, that, that you had worked on earlier. Um, tell us a little bit more about uh, some of the projects that you've been involved with uh, in, in Montana and in uh, the benefits. We talked about kind of the, the crossover between 
uh, the the goals of uh, the Trout of Limited and some of the ranchers and so forth. But maybe on a, a larger scale in Montana, if you could share a few uh, uh, kind of uh, anecdotal stories with our... Oh, sure. Our listeners. Some vignettes, so to speak. I think that would be of interest. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll give you one of the early ones that I worked on that's still one of the more compelling ones that I've worked on. It involved a, a, an elderly couple that had ranched on a ranch in the Blackfoot Valley for about 40 years, and they had a they irrigated a, a piece of ground off of a river called the North Fork of the Blackfoot River, which happens to be one of the key bull trout streams in in the Blackfoot Valley. And, and bull trout, as you may know, are are on the endangered species list as a threatened species. So these folks had irrigated it for a long time. They Their irrigation ditch pulled, especially late in the season, a lot of water off the Blackfoot um, to the extent that it could actually affect the ability of these fish to move up and down the river. And um, when we approached them, they were doing sort of classic full-time flood irrigation. They had this great big ditch that took a lot of water. Every year they'd have to spend a week or more cleaning the ditch of cottonwood limbs and all sorts of debris that would get in the creek. But they'd been doing it for 40 years. And so we were concerned about trying to get a little more water in the stream late in the season. And so we went to them with the idea that we would change their point of diversion from this ditch that water had to run a mile and a half to get to their ground, which happened to be right next to the river, to a pump and pipeline and pivot system that they could not have to deal with that ditch anymore. And so we put that in in 2003, um, 2003, 2005, and um, we entered into a what we call a water lease with them that basically instead of having to divert 20 cubic feet per second, they could get by with two cubic feet per second. And wow. the rest of it stayed in the river. They got better production off of their acreage than they got with the flood irrigation. They didn't have to clean this ditch. And these are folks that were in their 80s. Okay. So spending a week cleaning the ditch was a big deal for them. And so at the back end of it all, we got a good chunk of water in this river at a time when we needed it. They got a system that was much more user-friendly for them. And um, and at the back end, that was, boy, it was, um, I first talked to them back in 2001, and um, the, 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 the man of the two has since died, but the, 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 the wife and I have become lifelong friends over the course of this relationship. Because once you do one of these agreements, you're, you're attached at the hip for the life of it. And so you... You have to figure out fairly quickly how you how you're going to relate to each other over the long haul, but that's sort of the the classic kind of benefit that if we can if we can find that deal, that's a deal that we would chase. Wow, what an amazing story! And for uh, uh, kudos to you and to the the couple in their 80s that are willing to make that change uh, at that stage of life. Uh, you know, that's a what a what a wonderful story. Thank you. And, and once again, we hear that, you know, adopting new technology is, it becomes a win-win. You know, they use less water, they got more production, and we got some water for the stream. So yep. And probably less nutrients in the process. Right. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's a very heartwarming story. That's fantastic. Um, so tell us about the fish population now in the river. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> I'll try to do this in short form because I can talk about it for hours. And I know the, I don't have an hour. <laughs> so, um, basically, it's a stream that had, as, as I mentioned earlier, typically if we have a if we have a flow problem, we probably have some other problems. And so there were this was sort of a two pronged problem. The first was that there's a stretch of the river that naturally loses water, and with irrigation on top of it, it could dry up at times. The second piece was that when it had water. Um, bull trout uh, go up high in the stream to spawn, and then they come back out in the fall after they spawn, and they run out of the river. Well, this particular stretch of river had five fairly big diversions on it, and none of those diversions were screened. And so every season when they'd come down, a whole bunch of them, typically these diversions would be in the outside bend of a river. And as the fish would come down, that's the path of least resistance. They'd end up in the ditch. And, oh. and in 1995, they found that the highest population of bull trout in the in the Blackfoot 
watershed were in these five ditches on this on this particular stream. And so that was one piece of it. Then the second piece, was, so first was to screen those ditches. That got done. And then we, we've done a number of, in addition to the story I just told you, a number of other um, water-related things to keep a little more water in that stream. Back when they first um, did a population survey on those fish, they found, they count spawning beds, what they call reds, when they sort of try to figure out population of bull trout. When they first started doing those counts in 1989, I think there was something on the order of about 10 spawning beds up in the, in the upper reaches of this river. By 2000, well, and by actually by the time we finally got our lease done in 2005, that had um, gone up from, you know, something like 10 up to um, over 100. So what you saw was this incremental increase in the number of fish that were actually making it back to spawn. And that's a critical piece of this. You don't just count live fish. You count the fish that are actually, you know, the factory for the rest of the populations that are coming along. And so in that particular case, with the suite of things that was done on that creek, again, all cooperatively with all of those irrigators and all of those ranchers, um, that is now a, I don't want to say it's a thriving system, but it is much more robust than it was at the front end of this whole conversation. Well, that's, um, that's, that's quite a success story. So now I'm curious how projects like that get funded and also do you find it as challenging to, to get the politicians and regulators at the same table and finding common ground as you did the producers with, with, the, with the stream and environmental interests? You know, kind of a four-legged stool to get <laughs> everybody is. on the same oh, page. And, and, and sometimes probably all four legs are there. Um, and, so and the first question is the funding. Um, typically, these... The transactions and the efforts that we're working on in terms of restoration are are funded by a sort of a mosaic of different funding sources. Most funders want to know that, that other funders have skin in the game. And so typically you end up having to put together a sort of a jigsaw puzzle of funders, um, and whether they're state, federal, or private. And, and that can be challenging at times, um, finding the, you know, once you've once you've designed your projects and you know what you need, to then go out and, and sell those projects and, and find the funding for them, there's a, there's a whole art and, and sort of subset of tasks that have to happen to make all of that happen. Um, but, do you, but do you find the politicians and regulators kind of on the same page with you? To find well, um, not, depends on the regulator, okay? Um, and I, I'm trying to phrase this somewhat um, diplomatically. Um, politicians tend to love this because, you know, it's a success story where the people who are um, normally fighting with each other got their arms around each other's shoulders and they're working together. So the politicians, at least in terms of lip service, like it. Um, sometimes maybe not so much when it comes to saying, great, why don't you... Why don't you um, Go ahead and appropriate some money for us, but but to, politically it's very attractive, I think, to most people. Regulators, it's more challenging for, in part because they tend to have constraints on, you know, how they think about things. And sort of the regulatory structure in Montana is we have our Department of Environmental Quality that that deals with Clean Water Act and other things of of sort of a, an environmental quality nature, and we have our Department of Natural Resources that has to permit these these water rights transactions that I work on. And they, they, they have their own constraints that they have to apply to everything, and those typically tend to slow down what is already a slow process. But you, once you sort of know that, you adapt to that, and you deal with it. Most of the, the regulatory people I have dealt with understand that our efforts with these folks are adding value um, from the standpoint of their regulatory programs. Um, and so a lot of, not, not initially, that wasn't necessarily the case. I think there was some resistance because it wasn't, it didn't fit well into sort of the prevailing culture of most regulatory entities. But over time, and it's not a perfect world, I don't want to suggest that this is all settled and taken care of, but over time, it's, it's, there's been 
the relationship has improved, I guess I would say, in terms of trying to deal with these and the recognition that it's another way to, to sort of improve environmental issues while at the same time not creating these loggerheads of, of, of you know, sort of adversarial relationships between people. Um, a lot of our sort of collaborative partners in the Blackfoot now are, I think, much more accepting of the idea that there are um, elements of environmental quality that were not part of their upbringing or their, you know, their long-held family culture that they now are uh, sensitive to and willing to, to, to think about and work on and, and improve on. Well, that's just great. Excellent. So there's uh, there's lessons uh, for us here in California as well. I know Trout Unlimited is very active here as well. And, uh, as an outdoorsman and a fly fisherman myself and a member of Trout Unlimited, I applaud your efforts. So uh, uh, any uh, any closing thoughts uh, before we, in the minute, few minutes we have left, Chance? Um, I, I, I guess only to say that I, um, you know, I tend to work at the, the, the four-foot level instead of the 10,000-foot level. But um, when I when I look at what the um, the Western Agriculture and Conservation Coalition is attempting here, I I think that is the wave of the future, and um, I I can only sort of wish them uh, goodwill and and good luck in terms of moving their their visions forward as they as, as we go into the future. Well, Excellent. Well, thank you for the work that you do and for joining us this evening on short notice. And we'll look forward to following your work here in the future. I well, under, thank, you, uh, understand thank you for tolerating me. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. I understand what, there's uh, been some snow in uh, Bozeman. I have uh, family yep. up there, so uh, yep. it's we're, a, um, early winter. We're looking forward to more tonight, so we're all hopeful <laughs> for that. Thank you again, Stan, for all you do. Appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Thank you. Pretty interesting stuff there from... Uh, from our friends in uh, in Montana, uh, lots of interesting things that they're doing. Our uh, our next guest is uh, Dan Keppen. Dan, are you with us? I think Dan might be a little bit delayed, and um, so in the meantime, maybe we can make some correlations to what we just heard about Trout Unlimited's work with some of our earlier guests talking about collaboration. I mean, this collaboration thing seems to be. You know, the wave of the future. We we have got to do things in a cooperative way rather than a conflicting way. I, I remember Pat Mulroy uh, about a year ago uh, from, um, you know, Las Vegas. Um, uh, Southern Water Nevada Authority. Water, yeah. Southern Nevada Water Authority and now uh, uh, with the University of Nevada. She's basically saying that there are no winners versus losers anymore. You know, in the old days, you won and somebody lost. And in water in the West, we basically have to concede that we all win or we all lose. And so I love to see these collaborative uh, uh, efforts between previous adversaries, you know, the the farmers versus the uh, environmentalists or the urbanites against the farmers. And if we all work together, we can have the successes of... um, Things like we just heard from Stan, uh, you know, fantastic success story. But you know that you works. Know, that works for everything in the world. I wish the whole world would work like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but here we got more fish in the stream. The older couple got better technology. Um, they got increased yields. They used less water. Um, it's just um, you and, know, and give them kudos, and give them kudos at their age for doing that. Yeah, yeah. I, I could just hear the Lion King um, song, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just a happy little world with uh, stories like this. So it's very heartwarming. And I know that we're going to hear similar things from Dan. Uh, and Dan's uh, going to be joining us in 20 seconds or less. As long as you say introduce, he's there. Yeah. yeah. He's <laughs> here. Yeah, when, when he's, he's ready to go. He's, Excellent. He's ready to go. He's Hi, ready Dan, to go. <laughs> yeah. Dan, are you there? Yes, hello. <laughs> Hi, Dan. Uh, long time no see. Hi, guys. I, I just want you to know, I was uh, I was ready to go a few minutes ago, and then I was told to call back like in five, ten minutes. So sorry about no the uh, misunderstanding. Yeah, no problem. We were just having fun um, uh, connecting all the dots. So uh, good, to, <laughs> good to hear you. Well, I listened to, to you guys. The first portion of the show uh, sounded really good. Yeah, the Trout Unlimited story is really heartwarming, and... Um, 
I, I know that you'll have equally um, uh, good stories to share as well. So for our listening audience, let me introduce you, Dan. Um, Dan Kepin is the executive director for the Family Farm Alliance, a nonprofit association that advocates for family farmers, ranchers, irrigation districts, and allied industries in 17 western states. He has 28 years of experience in water resource engineering and policy matters and has worked primarily in advocacy positions representing Western irrigators, including being the executive director of the Klamath Water Users Association, where he was intimately involved with one of the most contentious water crises in the West. Yeah, we, we heard a lot about that. In his 12 years at the Alliance, representatives of the organization have been asked to testify before Congressional Water, Environmental, and Agricultural Committee hearings 60 times. Wow. Um, I commend you if you've been up on the Hill 16 times. <laughs> he's, a, he's a registered civil engineer in California, and Dan received his MS in water resources engineering from Oregon State University. I guess that would be the Beavers. And his BS in petroleum engineering from the University of Wyoming. So when I read that, I think, who says that oil and water don't mix? Well, <laughs> with Mr. Dan, Dan here, here's a guy that's got it both. So, uh, Dan, welcome to the show. And tell us um, how you ended up leading the Family Farm Alliance when uh, you had all that oil and water background. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, that's a great introduction. Well, you know, <laughs> I have to thank the I have to thank the uh, the world uh, oil industry uh, economics at the time uh, that kind of got me into water. I, I went to the University of Wyoming to study petroleum engineering. And uh, when I got out in 1987, oil was like $8 a barrel. And there really wasn't a lot of opportunities in petroleum engineering. So um, I decided to put my, you know, my training into uh, groundwater resources. And I, I went to Oregon State and got my master's re- uh, in, in water resources there. So basically in my career, I spent the first part of it doing, you know, engineering and consulting work. I uh, moved to California in the mid-90s and ran a, a flood control district and developed a groundwater management plan in northern uh, Sacramento Valley. Worked in Sacramento um, on lobbying uh, water issues for the Northern California Water Association. Spent a year at the Bureau of Reclamation working for Lester Snow, who is, you know, under Governor Schwarzenegger, was the Secretary of Resources. And while I was there is when the, when the water got shut off for the Klamath Irrigation Project uh, farmers in Oregon and California in 2001. And um, in the course of my interactions with those irrigators while I was at Reclamation, <clears throat> an opportunity uh, presented itself, and I moved to Klamath and, and ran the Water Users Association for four years, which was pretty pretty grueling. <laughs> and uh, uh, when I turned 40, I decided to step back and look at some other opportunities and uh, ended up creating my own consulting firm and took a couple of job offers and turned them into clients, and my primary client is the Family Farm Alliance, which I work for under contract as executive director. So I've been doing that now since um, since 2005, and it's, it's been very rewarding. Dan, tell us, uh, this Paul, tell us a little bit first about the situation, the fires. Last time we spoke, there were fires throughout Oregon, and uh, I know in Montana as well with this uh, recent snowfall has helped that. How are you guys faring? Well, I have to say, um, you know, my dad was a was a career a timber manager for the U.S. Forest Service. So I moved around a lot as a kid, and, and he was intimately involved with timber management. And I, I always kind of knew what was happening there. Um, and what we've seen in the West in the last several decades, I think, is just some policy changes, some priority changes um, where – Forests, in my view, aren't being managed um, for forest health. We're reactionary managing uh, to, to deal with fires. And every summer it seems like it's getting worse and worse. And I would say this year was the worst I've seen. Um, we had probably almost a month of, of smoke here in the Klamath Basin resulting from wildfires around Oregon. Um, at times the visibility was maybe 100 yards. Uh, but in the last week, the air, the, we had a cold front that came in. We got some rain. Actually, there's 10 inches of snow at Crater Lake. That put out a lot of the smoke and fires. And so it's looking pretty good right now, Paul. But um, a very grim summer. And I think a lot of folks that I work with uh, and, and, and people that live here in the community and live in, in rural areas of, of eastern and southern Oregon 
this is becoming a, a an annual event where these mismanaged forests are burning up, and we're dealing with air quality that's worse worse than Beijing. Well, well, I'm glad the fires have uh, subsided uh, first and foremost. So, uh, and glad uh, glad you guys are are uh, on the mend, so to speak. Tell us uh, tell us a little bit about the Family Farm Alliance, its mission, and and uh, how. Uh, how that mission has been enhanced by membership in the Western Ag and Conservation Coalition. Sure. So our organization was started about 25 years ago, um, and um, it was created kind of uh, in response to some legislation that was being introduced to fundamentally change um, how the Bureau of Reclamation dealt with acreage uh, issues and, and irrigation acreage issues. And so... Um, Started out in Central Valley. We're actually a, a, an Arizona uh, nonprofit corporation. That's where we're incorporated. But now we've got members in all 17 Western states. And, uh, and our mission statement is protecting and enhancing water supplies for irrigated agriculture in those 17 states. So we're, we're, we're very narrowly focused on water. And um, I would say to the second part of your question, um, this Western Ag and Conservation Coalition uh, it, it's been very interesting to see it evolve because what brought us together initially was a, a couple of farm bureau, farm bills ago. I think there's a real interest in trying to take some of these conservation title programs of the farm bill, such as EQIP, the Environmental Quality uh, um, Incentives Program, which is really geared towards individual farmers and trying to expand that to a, sort of a regional level, so like irrigation districts and watershed groups and coalitions could use that same sort of um, water quality, water quantity um, improvement mantra, but apply it to a larger level where you could get bigger bang for the buck. And that's that's kind of how our groups got together. It was Laura Zemer and Trout Unlimited, Family Farm Alliance, um, a couple of other parties that got together and said, you know, let's see if we can reach some common ground and um, um, advocate for some programs that provide environmental benefits through water savings and water quality improvements. But for the farmers and ranchers that are involved, it gives them some incentives to do some good things in the environment and it provides an extra cash flow um, stream to, to back up, you know, other uh, traditional revenues that are coming in. And it was interesting. Um, the groups that were involved initially, it was Trout, it was Nature Conservancy, Family Farm Alliance, California Farm Bureau Federation, um, Wyoming Stockman. I mean, groups that in the past had at times had almost been involved in, in litigation on the other side of, 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 you know, the fence, so to speak. But what we agreed to do was agree on focusing on those sorts of programs that we knew could benefit farmers and ranchers and could help the environment. And this initially really kind of started in the Colorado River Basin, but now it's kind of expanded throughout the West. But there was a recognition, I think, by the conservation groups that the best opportunities to do really good things for the environment really occur on private lands owned by ranchers and farmers. And um, if we continue this, uh, you know, approach that some environmental groups take, which is let's just put squeeze to these guys and put them out of business and then that, that land and that water can go to other purposes. These guys, these environmental groups that we we're working with said, hey, that's not going to work because if the, if the farmers don't have young family members coming in to take over or, or they lose a revenue source, they're going to sell to developers and land that could otherwise be used to, uh, for ranching and for conservation purposes is going to turn into condos for ski areas, that sort of thing. And so that ultimately, that's kind of what brought us all together. And long answer to your initial uh, second part of your question, but I would just say working with the conservation groups um, on that narrowly focused uh, sort of a mission statement 10 years ago has now expanded into a, um, a relationship where we're tackling much more controversial things uh, that I would have never imagined that we'd be working together with the, with the conservation community. 
So um, I, 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 it's been very encouraging. And, um, yeah, you know, working with conservation groups, is maybe it strays a little bit for a mission statement. But ultimately, these sorts of partnerships help farmers and ranchers stay in business. And that's, that's very consistent with our mission statement. Yeah, well, tell, tell us uh, maybe there's some specific projects or issues that you faced with the alliance that you'd like to share that uh, hopefully also echo this win-win and cooperative, collaborative uh, um, trend that we are hopefully seeing more of and, um, and, and how that might um, relate to your time up on the, uh, on the Hill in Washington. Sure. So um, a couple areas. First of all, the Farm Bill and the conservation title. We've been working with this coalition now. I think this is our third Farm Bill that we've been working together on. And we have, we have, a, we have principles that we all agree upon. And, and Paul has been very involved with this effort as well. But it's, you know, it, it's advocating for um, these programs that we know, like, say, the Regional Conservation um, uh, Partnership Program. Regional programs that involve multiple stakeholders and collaboration intended to provide big picture benefits on, on sort of a watershed level. Um, trying to make sure that those programs, as they're implemented by the Natural Resources Conservation Service and other entities, are done so in a way that most of the dollars are going on the ground for things that actually help the environment, help the farmers, trying to minimize the dollars that are going into you know, I hate to say it, red tape and, and administration. Um, so th those are things that we all agree upon. We also agree upon, you know, the fact that w that we got to start um, tackling these issues that Paul mentioned earlier associated with forest health and watershed management. Um, it's, it's terrible what's happening right now, but Forest Service and some of these other agencies, so much of their budget is going into fighting fires rather than going into programs to, to manage for forest health. And so we're all on the same page there trying to advocate for preventative measures that get us out of this reactionary uh, forest management mode that we're seeing the agencies right now. And then also, you know, we agree on the need to find ways to encourage young farmers and ranchers to enter the business or stay in the business. Uh, right now, um, I think less than 7% of our farmers and ranchers are, are, are 30 years or younger. The fastest-growing demographic within farming in America is is 65 and over. So I think people are realizing at a time when we need to feed the world uh, more than ever, um, we're losing the people that can do that. And so we got to find ways to keep those those people in business. So those those are some of the encouraging things that we're working on with those groups. Um, I think uh, I, I see opportunities with these groups. To help us with messaging, ag agriculture in general, we've had a hard time kind of getting our message out. I feel like, uh, especially within urban areas, if we can get conservation groups to start um, kind of echoing what we're saying, so we have a, a message in unison about the importance of agriculture to feed the world, to, to clothe the world, but also to do it in a way that protects these open um, space values and environmental values. The, it's very helpful to have those those people on on, on your side. So uh, those are sort of the um, you know some of the the, the 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 things we're working on with those groups. Family Farm Alliance on our own initiative. We're really trying to find ways to um, cut through the re the regulatory red tape and and you know take dollars that are out there and put them on the ground and get projects done that improve our infrastructure, improve the, the environment, um, and, and stay away from funding litigation and permitting processes. So we're always looking for ways to streamline the regulatory process. Um, our messaging is a big part of what we do. You know, I love our, our relationship that we have with, with California Ag Irrigation Association, Toro Irrigation Association, um, because demand management, finding ways to more efficiently use water is so critically important. That's important, but also we got to expand the supply pie and looking for ways to, to enhance, you know, water supply um, is also important. There's a suite of tools that have to be done, and you can't just rely on demand management. You can't just rely on supply enhancement. It has to be both those things. 
So I feel like we've made some real progress in the last 10 years on really elevating the importance of developing new supplies and new infrastructure. So, yeah, um, kind of a common theme that we hear too is, uh, you know, the solution is all of the above. We have to work on all, all fronts, but, but, you know, we hear in the news that a lot of government programs are being defunded with the current administration. So it's a little scary to think of the farm farm bill and what your, um, you know, all the, all the good things you were just talking about that you're trying to accomplish with the farm bill. Uh, are you hopeful that, at, you know, that we'll still get some funding on that sort of thing here in the future? Well, I mean, the reality is, uh, especially with, with the kind of the makeup of Congress right now, um, it's not going to be the good old days where you just have a, a huge slush fund out there to, to, to fund all these things. The pork is, is, is a thing of the past, at least, you know, presently. Um, so, you know, the things that we're advocating for, you've you got to recognize that that is the reality, that, that there's going to be overall funding cuts. But there are other ways to make dollars stretch further. So if you could streamline a permitting process, say, you know, for a new storage project that might take 20 years under the current permitting uh, regime, and laws and administrative rules can be um, taken that knock that down to three or four years, you're, you're right there, you're saving millions of dollars. So there's, there's ways to um, make these programs, I think, more efficient, get to where we want without having those dollars that used to be there in the past. That's kind of the um, approach that we're taking right now. Dan, I'd like to uh, follow up on an earlier uh, comment that you made about the, the uh, mismanagement of the of our forest. Obviously, these fires uh, are, are terrible. Uh, you know, in Montana, for example, they just, uh, I was told that they were, they had a, over a million acres that burned. Um, it affects uh, people, it affects animals, it affects the environment, the rivers and streams, the fish. What are what are three things that you could uh, uh, share with our listening audience, in your opinion, that would help uh, proactively address these these situations rather than uh, the way that we're doing it today? Well, let's see. So, you know, I, I live on a on a on a hillside up here in the Klamath Basin, Southern Oregon, and it's basically in the middle of a juniper forest. A juniper forest that wasn't here 70 years ago. <laughs> it was just a bare hillside. We have a lot of that kind of um, you know new vegetation that's encroached in the high desert over the last 50 or 60 years. Um, I first of all, I think prescribed burning. These agencies aren't allowed to go in and and, and do controlled burns to try to control the undergrowth and the vegetation that's kind of gotten out of control. And part of that is regulatory and associated with, with lawsuits um, that have been launched by certain environmental groups. But part of it also is just the public perception. Um, when you do a controlled burn in the spring and it's near uh, sort of an urban forest interface, those, uh, those landowners and those people living in the urban areas start screaming because of the smoke. Um, I'm hopeful that what happened this year where we had smoke for a month in the middle of the summer because, in part because we haven't been able to go in and, and, and control, burn the, 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 the undergrowth. Instead, we've had these catastrophic fires that you can't put out. They spread over tens of thousands of acres, and the smoke and the, the, the dollars um, associated with putting the fires out, the damage to the forest and habitat, and in particular... The fact that we've got some major fires right on the fringe of Portland, Oregon, which is starting to see smoke that we've seen for a decade in these rural areas of Oregon, but they're seeing it in Portland right now. There's a chance to kind of educate people on the need to do things like control prescribed burns, which is distasteful as they might be for two or three days in the spring. When you compare it to what we saw this summer, it's far preferable. Um, I think we've got to find ways to make it easier to go in and clean out mechanically this undergrowth that's occurred. And, you know, up here it's a very sensitive topic, but there's been emphasis uh, in the last 20 years where certain presidents will go into these executive orders and declare monuments, national monument areas, which basically takes old Forest Service areas and makes it so you can't do anything. You can't put in roads, you can't log, you can't graze. It becomes recreation only. 
that has a huge impact um, on the ability to, to get in there and fight those fires. Basically, you can't. If a fire occurs in some of these areas, you can't go in there and tackle them. There's no roads, uh, and fires that begin in those areas can spread not only to other national forests or federal lands, but to state lands. So I guess those are three things I would say right now that if we tackled those, um, it would help in the long term. And it's not going to happen overnight, but those are definitely um, – three things that would help and that's just based on my my personal experience here in the, in, in the basin and as a, as a landowner trying to make sure that my property is protected from uh, fire hazards. Thanks. Um, I know you recently spoke, uh, you were a guest speaker at the California Ag Irrigation Association and you'll soon be speaking at the California Ag Irrigation Institute in Sacramento this coming January. Can you give us a feel for uh, some of the highlights of those two uh, uh, meetings and some of the things that will be coming out of that uh, in January? Sure. And I, I really, it's great to see both of you down there um, at the at the conference in Pismo, and I'm looking forward to the event in Sacramento. Um, so the, the, my message has been, and in, in, in many of the presentations I've, I've given recently is, you know, from our standpoint, you know, we're about finding ways to, again, enhance and protect irrigated water supplies in the West. I would encourage, I mean, there's, there's been so much uh, divisiveness um, and so much controversy about some of the things that are happening in Washington right now. But from my standpoint, there's things happening in Congress and there's things happening with the administration that are good for irrigated agriculture. And personally, I think good for um, the environment because there's a, there's a concerted effort in Congress and uh, within the administration to move away and try to discourage um, litigation and confrontation associated with uh, implementing some of these federal laws like the Endangered Species Act and the Clean Water Act. And I really do think that um, uh, both you know, there's laws moving through or, or proposed bills moving through Congress and administrative actions that are occurring at the Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture, and EPA that um, I, for the first time in eight years, I feel like the regulated community and in particular agriculture um, were being listened to. And uh, I, you don't hear very much about that in the national news, but I am encouraged by things that are happening with the administration and in Congress. Um, and I think here in another year or two, there's going to be some things that are going to be in law or, or administrative policies that have been signed off by secretaries that will uh, improve, um, improve things for farmers and ranchers in the Western United States. And so that's well, kind of what I've been talking about is I know there's a lot of, of, of doom and gloom out there. Um, I think uh, there's actually some good things happening in Washington, D.C. that you don't hear about in the mainstream media necessarily, and that's what I'd like to report on here um, in recent weeks and probably for the next couple months. Yeah, well, we look forward to your remarks in uh, uh, Sacramento and for our listening audience. And, um, you know, that's the California Irrigation Institute. Uh, that meeting, that co uh, conference is uh, scheduled for January 29th and 30th in uh Sacramento at the Hilton Art Inn West, um, so just a few months away, and it's a great forum. Two or three hundred people attend, and uh, ag, urban, and environmental interests are discussed, and it's in its 56th year, so um, mark your calendars, folks. If you're interested in water issues, if you're a water wonk or a water geek or just a regular Joe Q citizen, uh, it's, it's a great conference, and Dan will be uh, speaking there, and I, I would imagine that other topics will be uh, kind of hot there in a few months, Dan, such as the water fix. And I don't know, you have any comments on what we've heard this week? There's been some big news. Oh, um, yeah, well, I it, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, the water fix is uh, it's in the news everywhere. And I know there's a lot of folks down, you know, your listening audience right now um, that would be, you know, hugely impacted by whether or not the water fix goes forward. But right now, the farming community um, the dollars that are involved hits them much harder than it does, you know, urban water users. So they're looking at having to sort of almost like double what they're paying for water right now, which is going to be several hundred dollars per acre foot. 
and I'm not saying all all the ag parties have, have the same um, mindset on this, but what's been in the news is what Westland's Water District has decided on here a few days ago, and and uh, you know I think from their standpoint they're not sure that there's regulatory assurances that they're going to be able to really benefit from the water that 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 would be you know developed and 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 through this this new these new two, two twin tunnels and the multiple diversions there. Um, <laughs> It's cost, and it's. I think they just they want some assurances that they're actually going to be able to access that water, and they've got every reason to have doubts. I think because of what's happened over the last 15 or 20 years with Bay Delta water management and the sort of regulatory drought that that they have to face every year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I think you know from a, somebody in Southern California uh, to put themselves in the Westlands shoes would be by, by saying basically, okay, we're going to build this project, but you're going to have to pay twice what you're paying for water every month. Of course, they would be shocked probably, and but, but that's what the irrigators on the west side of the valley are facing right now. So we'll just have to see how this all plays out. Lots of politics, and I'm sure there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes, but uh, um, I, that will definitely be a topic of interest, I think, when we have the, the conference in Sacramento, Iggy. Dan, in our uh, minute or so we have left, any uh, any closing thoughts or comments that you'd like to make? Well, you know, thanks for the opportunity to, to be on your show. And, uh, again, it was great to see both of you here recently, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again uh, in Sacramento. Um, you know, I think the old the old days of drawing lines in the sand um, and, and fighting your adversaries, um, I'm not sure that's the, 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 the wave of the future. At certain times, you got to do that. But hopefully the discussion here today about uh, our, our coalition that we have, the Western Ag and Conservation Coalition, shows you that there's, there's new ways of doing business. And it's all a matter of, of, of finding people that want to do the right thing and, and finding that common ground. And then also just trying to stay engaged. we got to try to be involved across the board. And I love the thing that my, my boss, Pat O'Toole, always says, that, you know, if you're not at the table... You're going to end up on the menu. <laughs> oh, that's well, great with that great quote, we'll end it. Thank you for your uh, your efforts, Dan. I appreciate you being a guest in the water zone. We'll see you on the All right, thank you for the opportunity. Good night. Rob? Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, we can go from the interstate to your plate <laughs> with some roadkill. But anyway, we appreciate the, the show, and it was great. And uh, we'll see everybody next week. And remember, the most important thing to think about is something blue called water. Good evening, everybody. Have a great day.